those of you listening online to the SUM Chapel for the uh, Metro Praise International Cohort. Jared Walker here, the Cohort Advisor, here with these lovely students. How you guys doing today? Fun day Monday. I hope we don't have the Garfield spirit in here, you know what I mean? You remember Garfield, the grouchy cat, he hates Mondays. All right, but if, if you bring lasagna, I won't be mad at you. <laughs> Fun day Monday. Hey, it's our best life now. We're loving God. We're sitting here listening to his word. I learned a lot last week, took some notes like you guys don't understand. This is cutting edge uh, stuff here in terms of Christian apologetics. Drink it in, guys. Those of you listening online, what a privilege. Let's welcome our visionary leader, Pastor Joe Irostek. Amen, amen, amen. Would you bring that uh, new board that we have, please, and place it here? Thank you. The first thing I'll be doing today, Lord willing, when I get home, because I'm going to go on the truck by Wicker Park, uh, the first thing I'm going to do, Lord willing, when I get home is cut out that section of his word right there. Dude, that was powerful. Those words in Jeremiah and then in Hebrews and the way you turned it on the mindset, you're like, well, that's just the Old Testament because they always want to say now, uh, that's just the New Testament. What do we do with the Old Testament brokenness? No, I love it because he shows us the healing in the, new, in the Old Testament. Same God, same love for us, same burden yoke, destroying power. Amen. Okay, so let's go to yesterday's notes. If you have them, go ahead and get them. If not, you can track with me up here. Either way, they're on the app. And uh, we're going to be talking about War of the Worldviews. So you can always think of like Sunday being part one and then part two being here on Mondays. And those from the church, you can get it via live here on Facebook. You can also do that through our podcast or our app because I put all these messages there as well. So the church can benefit from this and consider it like their Sunday school, but we'll call it Monday school. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, the War of the Worldview. Uh, Paul speaking here, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we understand we're in a war. We're not fighting the war as others have done. I've given you examples of that. The Zulu nation in the 1800s, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incas, the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Japanese empires, the Chinese empires. I could be here all day. That's how they fought their worldview wars. Also, Roman Catholicism did that, and even a little bit in Protestantism, they did that. Uh, if you want to know some history, coming to America, a lot of that was for freedom of religion. A lot of the pilgrims came for freedom of religion. Never let people make hate generalizations of the church history. Make sure that they get specific with you when they're pointing out issues. We stand on a Protestant faith, so you can't paint us with the Catholics. And then when Protestants made those issues, they have to show that it comes from our scripture. So when we make an example to Muslims and we say, Muhammad was a jihadist pedophile, that is true Islam, they can't get upset with us because we show that in Muhammad's life. If they show us witch burning, they have to show our Jesus or our apostles doing that. 
that. Does everybody understand that? So they have to be held, we have to hold them to the consistency of our worldview. Just because somebody did something in Jesus' name doesn't mean I have to agree with it or have to own that. I would rebuke that just like right now. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they support LGBT and abortion, right? So there was a lot of people who call themselves Christians and supported slavery. What's the difference? There is none. They were hypocritical Christians. Just like I say today, if you call yourself a Christian and support abortion, you're no more a Christian than I'm the man on the moon. If you call yourself a Christian and support LGBT, you're no more a Christian than I'm a man on the moon. There's been people against slavery from day one. Okay, Christians who said we were never for this. And when you study the African slave trade, it wasn't always a part of the European mindset. That was a particular time in history where they borrowed from the Islamic slave trade and the African slave trade that existed a thousand years before them. Never try to do away with that two to three hundred year period. Some expand it to four hundred years. That's fine. Never try to do away with that. I'm just saying when you talk about Christianity in Europe, it wasn't going on for thousands of years. It was only a few hundred year period. And during that time, people were protesting it, just like we're protesting it now. There were people from day one saying, this is not good. We're treating them as if they're animals, and they are people. And that's why I also showed you that human zoos existed during the time of Darwin and after him, because that just made sense for the evolutionary view. So that just propagated it even further. And both Christian and non-Christian loved that teaching of evolution. Christians would go, see, we were saying all along they're not humans. We don't have to treat them as humans. God made us unique as humans. That's why we could treat them as animals. And then non-Christians said, see, they're animals. We can we eat animals. We could treat them as animals. Does everybody get that? But remember, it wasn't just like white on black either. During the time, within 30 years of the Civil War, the Zulu nation was killing more of its own people than its enemies were, and that he was enslaving all of those tribes around him in South Africa. So black on black slavery existed, like I said, a thousand years before English slavery or colonial slavery ever even came to those parts of the world. Same thing with the caste system of India. If you talk to people from India, they want to blame a lot of their problems on colonialism. Let's, let's draw the lines and blame colonialism for colonialism thing. But you can't blame caste system and slavery. That existed before they ever got there, and it still exists today. And just like what I said, what do you blame right now uh, a, a, a Libyan slave trade on colonialism? They're slave trading right now Africans uh, in, in Sudan and, 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 um, and Sudan and Dofar. They're slave trading. Nothing to do with colonialism. And in right now, India, they're still slave trading, sex trafficking. I was just watching a video in Latin America. They're stealing children, sex trafficking. You guys have seen those videos. You know what I'm talking about in Latin America and the drug Drug lords, it's happening. Okay, so what you know, what are we going to do? Ask reparations from the drug lords now, or the Aztecs, or whatever they say they've learned that from. The point isn't how bad has the culture been. The point is let's win the worldview now with Jesus. Red and yellow, black and white, from all nations, tribes, and languages. Let's win the worldview. So I, the worldview war. So I put myself. I always like to go more Italian than Polish, but I do have half, you know. But I always go more to the Italian side because it seems a little more cooler, you know. Polish jokes and everything kind of give us a bad name. But anyways, and Polish people normally know the best Polish jokes. And I didn't grow up in a Polish neighborhood. I grew up in the suburbs of Fort Wayne where I was like the only Polish person in the world or to them. But my dad grew up in a Polish neighborhood, so he knows all the jokes, all the Polish jokes. He'll tell them to you all the time if you ask him. But, but here's my point. If I am the Roman centurion in the book of Acts, and they come and preach to me, I am now making Christ my king, the Jewish Messiah. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter if there's a guy who looks like me who is Caesar. I don't believe Caesar is God. He's wicked. 
Do you, do you guys all get that? And that's where Paul goes in Acts 17. He's saying on Mars Hill, it's not about these gods and it's not about these cultures. All of us have been given our own culture, our own land, our own generation by God's sovereignty, but he did this that we might reach out to him and find him, for he's not far from any one of us. So the war of the worldviews should be based on God and his word, not our culture. But when I see my culture come against that worldview, I'll meet them every day on the battlefield. So when I see people try to take advantage of what's going on with race right now and then drag the church into that, I'm going to be the first one there and say, get your paws off the church. You can't do that. I'm going to be there to help decipher things. Just to give you an example, just, just one example of the war of worldviews, there's people saying that Christianity is the white man's religion and that enslaved the people, came to North America, enslaved the Native Americans, did all of these things, and now we should reject Christianity based on that. There's at least three or four cults that talk that way. There's the Kemet cult of the African Americans that now want to bring you back to Egyptology. There's actually a cult of Zulu people celebrating African paganism. That's come back. And there's the Nation of Islam, Muslims, and then different versions of that like the Moors. And you'll see the black people that are wearing kind of like the... Um, the, the Shriner's hats. Okay, so all of that lie right there is a lie. How can I prove that, disprove that? Easy. Who gets saved first in the book of Acts, Europeans or Jewish people? Jewish people. Then who gets saved first in the book of Acts? Europeans or people of color like Ethiopians. The Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. The Ethiopian eunuch, Christianity, now watch, started spreading through the Roman Empire and the centurion, and these people get saved. But the Europeans at that time hated Christianity, went against it, were killing it, right, for 300 years. Where did Christianity thrive for the next 300 years? In Ethiopia. The Christian church was large in Egypt. Egypt, in Ethiopia, these African nations, well before it ever became European. So there you go. It was never a white man's religion. Now, at, at the time of Constantine and different things, did white people come into power? Did they paint the, uh, the Jesus of that time to be white instead of a person of color? Yes, uh, we'll own those things. But once again, I'm not that person. That's what they did. But I agree with you. It's wrong. Does everybody get that? I want to make sure you're tracking with me. You guys understand that. So people of color have been in the Bible from moment one. Uh, Moses married an Ethiopian. or uh, Yeah, he married an Ethiopian, correct? Yeah, he married an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian eunuch was saved and got, got the gospel. Why? Because Solomon had already pretty much brought the gospel to Ethiopia during his time. So, I mean, I could just be here all day, and not to mention the people who left Egypt, uh, the Egyptians who left Egypt with the Israelites. Do you guys remember that? Uh, that it says a great multitude left with them. So it wasn't just Israelites that left Egypt that day. A bunch of Egyptians said, man, we don't like it here either. We're going with you. So the idea, and, and that would be people of color as well. Uh, so the idea that this was ever an Anglo thing is just nonsense, 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 nonsense. Now, it could be rightly said that some of the Anglos messed it up as the Western world was coming about. That's true. But also Anglos did a lot of wonderful things. The, the Anglo building of the church did a lot of wonderful things for church history, like writing down our manuscripts and doing all those things. So you got to kind of weigh it out. But once again, I'm not putting any of them in heaven. I don't know whether or not they went to heaven or hell. Uh, just going towards the Reformation, I believe Martin Luther more than likely is in hell because of how he felt towards the Jews. You can't feel that way towards the Jews and expect to go to heaven. So I don't have any uh, problem saying from Martin Luther to anyone else, they point to me in church history. But once again, 
again, those aren't conflicts with our worldview. Those are just Bible studies we do with Christians to explain our worldview. When we go to war with our worldview, they have to have an explanation for the ethics that they're holding towards our worldview. Okay? So let's look at the board. I know this might be blocking it, so let me move this. Can everybody see the board now? Okay, perfect. Okay. So once you find yourself in a worldview war, this is the way I want you to think through it. I want you to start putting people in these categories. And I was just listening to a great debate with Cy on the non-sequitur show, which is an atheist show, and they were debating presuppositionalism, which is a lot of times what this is called. And the atheist was actually an atheistic presuppositionalist because they're admitting now that they can't do anything without foundations. But what was really neat is that Cy then said, you have presuppositions, but you need an axiom to ground them, a stronger foundation that has sense for the presuppositions. And by the way, that was such a confirmation because I've never seen this chart before. I made this after studying the, stu the two major schools of presuppositionalism, which is Vantillianism and uh, Gordon Clarkism. So Clark and Van Til, I've studied both of them and, and I've learned from them, okay? And, but I made something that was my own kind of way of looking at it. But it was beautiful in the debate to see Psy begin to defend his presuppositions by going to the realm of axioms. Now, I didn't make up axioms. That's where Gordon Clark is unique in presuppositionalism. He stressed an axiom. But how I developed this chart to show the flow, the foundation of axiom presuppositions, and then I added propositions, and then opinions was always in Gordon Clark as well. But the way it makes sense here, I think, will be very beneficial. And that's why I was very humbled by what Jared said. Is It's just God's gift on my life. Apologetics is not my number one. My number one is doing what I'm doing right now. That's pastoring, making disciples, church planning. That's my number one. As a part of that, I've noticed that you need apologetics. You need the defense of the faith. And you have to do both. You've got to defend the faith, and you've got to destroy the faith of others. You've got to lift up your faith, and you've got to destroy what they believe. And that's true. So you've got to do both. But, but as I was listening to this this video, and it was wonderful because it wasn't like this back and forth, and it wasn't like your normal moderate debate. It was simply 45 minutes of one person questioning the other, the Socratic method, asking questions from Socrates. That's where he, he taught how you should learn is by asking questions. And then the other uh, side was questioned for 45 minutes. What I loved about that is you got clear answers on where both people stood, and now I'm at the point now where they're taking audience questions. So here's what I was, was able to you know, start jotting down as I was listening to him. He was starting here in his chart where we start here. And this is where Sai began to really stress on this. But when Sai was giving his explanations, he was here as well. So when the guy was giving his presuppositions, it almost just, you know, as I, by the way, as I start doing the other religions, I'm going to be filling them into this chart. So it'll be like ours versus theirs. That would be a great way so you guys will see how it will be done. So I just want you to learn this first. Like next week, I'll probably talk about the Bible and understanding how it works, if not just a part two from yet last week. So I got to kind of figure that out as the Lord leads. But then I'll get into the Bible, this axiom. And then after we do the axiom, then we'll go into all the, uh, the presuppositions. And then I'll probably do a message on propositions. And then I'll explain how science and experiential claims uh, fit into that. And then from there, we'll just start putting toe-to-toe, -to -toe, ours versus theirs, ours versus theirs. And you'll get into the habit of sketching out what people are saying. But like I was saying before, he started giving his presuppositions. And that seemed kind of like toe-to-toe -to -toe with what Sai was doing. But then Sai had to start answering this right here. 
And so hot off the press, I'm telling you, this is where you want to start. You want to start like Gordon Clark would and ask people, what is your axiom? What is the main presupposition, the main starting point where everything else comes from? So we start with God and his word. And I think I can actually simplify that even more, God's word. So I think I'm just going to simplify so the chart will change. And you'll see as I'm learning with you throughout the sermon series, probably things will change a little bit here. But we'll start with God's word. Now, he didn't have a way to start. He just leapt right into presuppositions. So I would have asked him as an atheist, is your axiom yourself then? Because you're already having presuppositions up here. Where are you getting them from? Where did yourself come from? You know? So if you have nothing greater than yourself, then it is yourself. It's either yourself or something outside of yourself. There's, there's no other way to do that. So it's either going to be self or God here. It's basically what it's going to come down to. And the, the problem with not knowing how to filter things like this is that people will run you in circles if you just keep going through the presuppositions. So they may have very similar presuppositions that, that logic works and that we can understand the world. We're not a brain in a vat and all of that, uh, those kinds of things. But how do I know I'm not a brain in the vat? It's because God has said, how do I know that the world is in order and these different things? How do I know the problem of evil? It's because God said. If I just jumped up to here and just started making my own uh, presuppositions, then they would be nonsensical to the world that I live in. Because I could literally say, like we've talked before, I presuppose these things, and yet I'm in a, a brain in a vat. I would have no way of not knowing I'm a brain. So it would become nonsensical. I couldn't trust my senses. Honestly, you understand what nonsensical means. It means when your senses cannot be proven true. It's, it's outside of reason. You can't reason to that. You can't reason whether or not you're in a brain in a vat. You can't do that. It's impossible. And if they think they've solved the problem, I would love to hear them try. They can't. So I, I can just tell you right now, I'm right on top of the best journals. They still can't solve that problem. They have to, the moment they make assumptions that they're not a brain, in the, the moment they assume things to prove they're not a brain in a vat, they're already making the assumption that I'm not a brain in the fat because you're assuming that I'm not getting programmed to think that. So I'm going to prove to you I'm not a brain in the fat. Here's my reasons. How do you not know 30 seconds before that the, the guy just programmed you to say, I'm going to tell you I'm not a brain in the fat, and here's 30 reasons that I, I'm not. Do you get my point? It's, it, there's no way around it, and it's not like this, these are word games. I know sometimes people who don't think through these things, they think we're playing word games with them. Uh, I remember one time being on the streets at Wright College, and they were, you know, hearing these kinds of things, and they were like, leave it to a Christian to say a bunch of stupid nonsense. And I'm like, you have no idea. These are the very issues that all the philosophers themselves wrestle with. Like Hume's problem of induction is not something I made up. As I'm about ready to show you again, the uncertainty of science. That's not what I'm making up. Scientists know this. So the, the way, and we won't always be on atheism, by the way. Once we get past atheism, and the minority of the world is atheist. No matter how much it's growing in the West, it's still such a minority. The majority of the world, over 90% believes in God, and they're going to place their God, their faith, their religion here. And it's much more easier to leap off from that point and then start arguing presuppositions and see which God makes sense of the world. That's the best way to do it. But we do want to deal with this because... Atheists are the most antagonistic towards us. But once again, remember, when you're arguing with an atheist, you're arguing with someone who has no foundation. So they can't, be in their, they can't even be in the argument. They can't enter into, let's just draw it like this. And then David Wood has a debate with an atheist, and he said, um, Here's, it was a, does God exist? And he stood up and he said, um, I can prove that God exists. 
And then he says, because we're having this debate, God exists. So he basically said, if God exists, we can have intelligent debate. We're having an intelligent debate, therefore God exists. And then he, then he spent the next 45 minutes explaining there's no other way to enter into this world of reason without having a God. There's, there's no other way. If you just want to jump right in here and say it's reason without a God, you just, you're just going to say, I, I, I'm just coming into reason without there being a God. You have to explain now why you exist. My axiom explains why I exist. Why are you even existing right now? If, you, if you're, and see, this is where we talk about the holistic nature of a worldview. If your worldview can't explain why you're here, then your worldview can't explain what to do here. Somebody put that on Facebook. Man, put that on Facebook. If your worldview cannot explain why you are here, it can't tell you what to do while you're here. Your worldview has to explain, first of all, why you're even here. Why are you here? How did you get here? You're a you, aren't you? Well, you see, these sassy, uh, now atheist presuppositionalists have to debate with their own atheistic nihilists, which is why I always bring up Alex Rosenberg, and Jared's been with me when I've used Alex Rosenberg against atheists. What I'm doing with that is I am showing an atheist by another atheist's teachings that they are not consistent. So here's the idea of Alex, Dr. Alex Rosenberg and how I use it, and then I'll get into some of the things. Just look at your neighbor and say it's the introduction. I haven't even got past the preliminaries. I'm just reviewing some things and sharing some of my thoughts, and I have some new things I want to share with you, okay? I, I really mean that. There's so much to talk about here. Somebody said to me yesterday, they said, I think I know why this series is so fun right now. They said, because you are in your element, and you're making it fun, and everybody just feels it right now. They're learning, and they're having a good time. So I hope that you feel that. It's just a great place to be. We, and if anybody ever says, this is too philosophical, this is too deep, I wish you would just teach the Bible. Uh, we did that for 18 months, verse by verse, through one book of the Bible. Can we, can we apply the Bible now in some different ways? Can we show that our Bible is more than just a Bible study book, right? Like, that's what we're doing now. We're not leaving the Bible. I gave you a scripture. I'm showing you how to demolish arguments. I, I, can't, I can't go on from that without showing you what kind of arguments we're dealing with. I could keep reading the rest of Corinthians and talk about their arguments, but I'm going to show you our arguments. Okay, amen. And so if anybody says, these guys, if they visit during this season, they'll be like, man, they, he's just too deep for me. Well, there's 18 months, over 50, almost 70 sermons, or what is it, 50 sermons you can listen to them go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Amen. Okay, so let me just show you this. When I go to Dr. Alex Rosenberg, this is what I do it for. Because in summary, his book says, uh, toughen up, buttercup. If you're an atheist, you better start living like one and stop borrowing from Christian worldview. This is literally what he says in his preface. This is a book for those who want to face up to the real answers to these questions. And the questions he just asked, do I have a soul? Is there a morality? Do I even exist? All of these things. It's a book for people who are comfortable with the truth about a reality. This is a book for atheists. So 
This doctor in philosophy and science, he's going to go right in on them. He's going to preach what we would call the straight doctrine of atheism, just like how we believe ISIS is teaching the straight doctrine of Islam from Muhammad. This is the straight doctrine of atheism. And I've heard people try to say, well, don't paint us all together, but there's no way around his argument. So this is what I say. You can't even defeat his arguments, let alone my arguments. You ain't ready for me yet. You defeat him first, then you come to me. So before I even defend myself, defend yourself against him. And then I'll defend what I believe and crush this thing, okay? Because this is consistent atheism. This is it. By definition, this is non-contradictory atheism, uh, or I should say this is the most consistent kind of atheism because it's still contradictory. And I'll show you in just a moment. He says right here, Science enables atheism to answer answer life's universal and relentless questions with evidence employing a real understanding of the natural world. Some of these answers it provides to these questions may disconcert you. Now, why does he say science is going to answer these questions? Because he is a scientist. He believes in scientism. And then what he says right here, that it may disconcert you, but it doesn't matter. Now he answers the questions that everybody as an atheist, should answer the way he answers. So this is basically like their catechism, like how I would ask you, do you believe in God? Yes. Is God three in one? Yes. Is the Trinity true? Yes. Like you would go through that sometimes in the older churches for your membership. You would answer these questions. This is how you would answer these questions as an atheist. Is there God? No. What is reality? Whatever physics says it is. And remember, there he's contradicting himself. Physics doesn't say anything. Okay? Physics is not walking around talking like on Sesame Street, like a word called physics. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. See, right there, he just, stop pretending there's a purpose. There is no purpose to the universe. Then, then we asked him in a debate, the Christians did, why did you write a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality if there's no purpose? Okay, you know, you just catch him in all of these things. Uh, what is the meaning of life? There is none. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? And by the way, neuroscience has just proven that. There is a soul that affects the brain, neuroplasticity. Is there a free will? Not a chance. Right there, he just ends it. You're not a soul. You have no free will. You are a biological machine. You are a bag of chemicals. You are a chemistry experiment. That is all you are. I mean, come on. But once again, he keeps going. He says, what happens when we die? Everything goes on like it was before you were alive. Is there any difference between right and wrong, good and bad? Is there any difference? There is no moral difference between them. He tosses away morality. There it goes. The meaning of life, there it goes. This is true atheism. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. So you're just living by your chemicals, and right now in in this culture you live in, it's better not to be immoral, so you get to do more fun things with your chemicals, because otherwise they put you in jail for being immoral. Then he says, is abortion, euthanasia, killing old people, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. He literally answers, anything goes. You could blow out your neighbor's brain right now. Anything goes. There is no moral difference between it. You're not even a free will agent. You, if you did it, it was just because your chemicals wanted you to do it, and that's the way it is. That's how he starts off the book. He then ends the book, as some of you who were in second service, he then ends the book by, and these are called illusions that you think you have the meaning of life. They are called illusions that you think morality matters or that your children matter. Those are all illusions, and they just help you get along better as an organ 
organism, your biological machine gets along better when you hang around children and help people, etc. But none of it really matters in the long run. He then says at the end, so this is his crescendo. He writes like one of those authors that want to leave you hanging right on the last paragraph to the very last sentence. The very last illusion he destroys is the actual self. So he's already told you you don't have a soul. And you were supposed to deduce from that that therefore there's not an eye on the inside of you because souls make eyes, brains are its. Now he says you're an it right here at the end. The self, the person, the eye inside the body is an illusion along with all the others. That's how he's ending his book. Last sentence of his book is this. If you can't sleep at night, now that you've accepted all of science's answers to the persistent questions, you probably just need one more thing. Take a Prozac or your favorite Reputake inhibitor and keep taking them until they kick in. Those are the last words of his book. Now, just to show you that he is not some kind of Oompa Loompa, that this is one of the best of their kind. I'll put him up here right now just to show you. Rosenberg. What kind of name is Rosenberg? Jewish. Jewish by descent. Look at him. Dr. Alex Rosenberg, an American philosopher and professor of philosophy at Duke University. So I'm not just saying this is an Oompa Loompa. I'm talking Duke University, one of the greatest universities of our time. This is where he's a philosopher at. He received his Ph.D. from John Hopkins University. Okay? Can you get smarter than that? I'm saying we go toe-to-toe with him. He's a walking encyclopedia. These kind of people are brilliant. We're not taken away from his academics. We're not taken away from his ability to think. But his worldview collapses on itself. His worldview makes him a hypocrite. And that is where most atheists and non-believers are today. They are fully hypocritical. Because if there's no I, why did you sign your name at the bottom of this book? Who gets the... The royalties for this book, your brain or you? And when you talk, do you say my brain says or do you say I say? Because every time you use you, I, or myself, uh, you know, me, myself, or I, you're contradicting your worldview. And so these kind of people, I'm glad they're hypocrites to their worldview, but it shows that they live inconsistently to it. But that is as consistent as a person can get. That's the rabbit trail it leads you down. Isn't that a sad world? Literally, the only hope you have is just to take more drugs to feel better about yourself so you don't think about these questions. And he goes into more depth and throughout the book when he gives you hard answers, how to take the drugs and just not think about it and just go on and enjoy whatever your brain wants to enjoy and, and go from there. But could you imagine if the world was actually living like this? You couldn't even put anybody in jail, technically, because it would just be their brain that did it. Everybody could just say, it's just my brain that killed my wife and kids. My brain did it. My brain did it. That's why, as you know, with suicide, I'm warning us against that. Because there could be, like on the same level of somebody that's mentally retarded, I believe the grace of God covers them under the same principle of children in an age of accountability. So that's where I put mentally retarded people. And there could be mentally retarded people that commit suicide. That would be an exception to my rule of every suicidal person going to hell. But the majority, the vast, almost like 99.99% of those committing suicide are not mentally retarded. They know exactly what they're doing. But what worldview are they doing it from? Mostly from that kind of worldview. I'm going to end my suffering. Because if they truly believe they're going into more suffering, would they do it? Absolutely not. See, the worldview determines everything. So I heard one person use the example of suicide like this. Imagine the people on 9-11 
The building is on fire, and now you have a choice to die by the fire or jump out of the building. Since you fear the fire more, you jump out of the building. Now, a quick little side journey here is, is that suicide according to my definition? No, that's escaping. That's escaping according to my definition. Suicide is to willingly take your life when there is no option to live. If I know I'm going to die and I get to choose my point of death, which is a crazy place to be, I'm going to choose the one that's less painful, okay? So escaping is not the issue. Now, uh, what they may, so they're, they're not using this per se as an argument for suicide. What they're trying to say is, when I have the choice of dying by fire or dying by leaping, I choose the leaping over the fire. Now, this is how they say it. When it comes to suicide, they see living as the fire and dying as the easier thing. But is that the right worldview? Absolutely not. In the worldview I'm saying is, if you're afraid of the fire, what you're leaping out to is a pit of fire that never goes out. Do you get how that just changed the whole scenario? So would I run out the building if I had a choice between what's going to be my method of death, die of this fire in two minutes, five minutes, however long it takes your body to burn, two, or, two to five minutes, or am I going to jump out into a fire that lasts for 100 years, 1,000 years, a million years? I'm going to stick out the two or three minutes of burning to death than that. Okay, does everybody get that? Okay, and, and so we, we have to help them see that their worldview is broken. So the suicidal, the, the gangbanger, see the gangbanger once again, and I know Joe B. caught some slack for this because he put it on Facebook, but we all say R.I.P. One of the most popular things in the hood is the shirts that say R.I.P. for gangbangers. So now watch. You're a gangbanger. You're going to die eventually. You know that. You're not necessarily even afraid of that. But what do you think? It can't be any worse than this. And then my memory, rest in peace, I'll be known as a soldier. I was the toughest guy on my block. That's their thinking. But once again, if their worldview really was, if I die here, I suffer forever in hell. Worse than it was getting beat by my family, getting beat in the neighborhood, seeing the drugs and the hell that I saw down here. It's worse there, would I do that here? No. See, it all comes back to worldview. So we're helping people see that the atheistic worldview, even as Christians, we're helping them see, has snuck its way into the church. So when the church, get this, get this, when the church left science, we left the Christian worldview of science. And we said, scientists, you tell us what to believe then. When the church left the mental health field, we let the world tell us about mental health. When the church left ethics and children and family, we let the world tell us what to do. My wife was taking birth control not even knowing that the form she was taking could kill an embryo. It could kill the beginning stages of life. We didn't even know it. We actually went to Planned Parenthood. We used to go there. We didn't even know. I'm telling you, 10 years ago, it wasn't that popular to know that all Planned Parenthood was a front for was abortion, but it provided all these women's services. So we didn't know. We just went and got the women's services, right? But we never knew that that was really their front, that the majority of what they did was for abortion, or that this kind of birth control actually could kill life or in an embryo. And so the world, even in the, the Christian the worldview of the world has come even to the Christian mindset. That's why now when we speak against it, they think we're so odd. Like, they just can't understand. What is our problem? Well, our problem is, is that you haven't made God's words your foundation. 
When you're talking to them about subjects, even with other Christians, you're normally arguing about God's word, aren't you? You're showing them in scripture. You're, show, you're going right back to the scripture so that your presuppositions make sense to your propositions. See, if God is over, uh, if, if God created us and evolution is not true, then the propositions we're making about abortion are based in God's word. They're based in God's word. Suicide based in God's word. All of these things based in God's word. But if we don't have God's word, then all of those things will be acceptable and they'll continue on. Okay, so here we go. Our axiom is God's word. Our presuppositions are the basic tenets of the faith, the fundamentals, as we would say. Our propositions are the judgments we make from the, prop, uh, the, the presuppositions in God's word. So we deduce these things. Can propositions change over time in your life personally? Yes. Do they ever change in God's world? No. So think about it like this. Let me give you a couple quick little one phrase things. We don't reason to God. We reason from God. Okay, you see the difference? I'm not reasoning like a ladder up to God and then trying to understand him more in that way. All of my reasoning is coming from God, and I'm trying not to get in the way of what he's saying. I don't want to suppress. Stop, you know, stop holding it down, letting it flow. And that's why the Bible speaks about the Spirit leading us and guiding us. And so we should be willing to seek after the truth and all of those things. But remember, we don't seek unless he first seeks us. We don't love unless he first loves us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're Calvinists and that we don't have a choice in the matter, but we agree with Calvinists that God has to make the initiation. God has to do the drawing. I could never learn one more thing about God unless he was drawing me by the Spirit to study the things that I'm doing. So why am I learning more about worldview? Because the Holy Spirit is drawing me to learn about worldview, and he's doing those things in your life, and then he's giving you propositions. So for an example, I made a proposition at one point that all alcohol is sin. And I thought I based it on the Scripture. But as I studied the Scripture more, I began to realize that all, all alcohol wasn't sin, that drunkenness was a sin, etc. Now, did God ever change? No, the Scriptures were over there. But did I change? Yes. And should we change as we go through time? We should. And I believe, like I said, these will be the things that I'm not going to change on because I don't believe I can make sense of the world without these things, just personally. Because sometimes when we get into other worldviews, I think I'm going to do one on Islam, one whole service on that, one whole service on like Hinduism and that kind of belief, another whole service on Catholicism since we have a lot of people that come from that. But then I'll probably combine all of the cults into one, and I'll just kind of show you that the cults, very similar to Roman Catholicism, have almost everything the same as us. But what makes their things different is sometimes they'll differ on this thing or differ on one of these things. And does that make a difference? Yes, because it's not the same God of the Bible. It's not the same world of the Bible. So in the world of Jehovah Witnesses, there's actually two gods. There's a greater God, and then there's a created lesser God. See, that changes the world. That's not the God of the Bible. There are no other gods besides him. Same thing is with Roman Catholicism. There's a salvation that doesn't come by faith alone. It's a salvation of works. But the whole entire story of the Bible is that the, the faith, uh, the righteous are justified by faith. It's that big of a deal, okay? Now, sometimes people ask me questions, 
What about your average Jehovah Witness or Mormon or Catholic or Oneness Pentecostal? Could they be saved? Yes, because they may not be opposing these things. They may be simply being in a church that opposes these things, but in their heart, they may be being drawn to what we believe. And oftentimes, you'll hear stories about them, because think about this. If Catholics can't be saved, then how did people leave the Catholic Church? They must have been saved at some point. Right Now, sometimes people then will point to charismatic Catholics or reforms in the Mormon church, and they'll try to say, is this what you're talking about? Well, I think that's where it becomes tricky, because how much of their worldview is still in that religion? Just because a, a, a Catholic priest speaks in tongues and is charismatic doesn't mean he's saved. We know oneness Pentecostals that speak in tongues and aren't saved. I know people in this church that speak in tongues and probably aren't saved. The gifts may still be there. Hey, you guys like that one? <laughs> love chapel. I love you guys. I, you know, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean, he says, many will say to me, we've done all of these things, okay? And we'll try to explain how you can have gifts of the Spirit or still operating them without being saved. I have some ideas that the Bible doesn't get into great depth in that. One of the scriptures is he doesn't take his gifts away, things like that. Uh, another thing I like to think about is we're probably more spiritual than we really know. So things that a lot of times we think are intuition probably fall into things like word of knowledge and prophecy. But that's another discussion. And I don't have a lot to say on that other than my opinion, which is up there, right? So remember, opinions are not just scientific claims. They're also experiential claims. So there are things that we can't put into this, this jar right there. And, and you're going to have uh, religious opinions. You're going to have religion. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have a lot of religious opinions. We just know where they belong. We know that they belong up there. And we don't want to make those our issues like we see in Romans chapter 14. We want to really exemplify the foundations of our Christianity. Well, one of the things that I wanted to show you that I left off with was this idea of John chapter 1, talking about yesterday where I left off with, is that the word is synonymous with how we would think about logic. And I know sometimes that may sound a little bit like forcing that in there, but it's really not. It's, it's the simple understanding of what word would have meant to that Greek culture. Uh, I, I say simple because there was multiple versions of it, but they all would have agreed that when the Logos was used in their understanding, that it contained in it logic, reasoning, and understanding. Now, some might have actually attributed their Logos to a person, like a demiurge or a god. Others might have saw it like in Jewish philosophy, as Juan was showing me on the post that I put up yesterday, as the messenger of the Lord, that they actually believe the angel of the Lord was the Logos. They were still using Greek terminology, but they were like, we can kind of see an agent of God being used by God among us. That's the source of all life and all these kinds of things. But we know the angel of the Lord is Jesus equal with the Father. But that would have been a Jewish way of trying to say, we still believe in one God, but there's this creature running around that has a lot of power and authority. And where they would get something like that from is the book of Proverbs where it says, I wisdom, and wisdom is now personified and talking. And so it's like, that's who the messenger is. He's wisdom. He's those things. But and Jehovah Witnesses actually want to call Jesus wisdom, but you have to understand wisdom is created. In the in the Solomon's story, 
Wisdom is created like how uh, something comes from God to oppose what has come from the devil. And really what it really then comes down to is wisdom is the wise woman and the devil is the foolish woman, you know. So you can't take that too far. But Jesus is the wisdom of God, but he's not just the wisdom that's being described in Proverbs, okay. It's like you can only take it so far because wisdom in, in the book of Proverbs is seen like a woman. That's opposing an adulterous woman, if, I, if, that, if that made that uh, make sense. So anyways, when we go here to the Word, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We understand that when we look at the word Word, we get the word Logos. And what I do here is, it's just simply, I put it up here for you, that you can see how Logos is used. I, I just go to Wiki, but you can go to other places. I have it on my Facebook page right now that you can see the etymology of it. But I, I didn't get a chance to show it yesterday, so I just want to show it now. And it will teach you about how it was used and all the different things. Here's the, um, oh, I actually want to show you the chart. Oops, sorry, I want to show you this chart right here. Don't tell me I'm going to get stuck again in the world of Google because I don't have one thing ready. You know, I just, I, I wish I would have made all my notes ready. Here we go. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm so upset right now. Why is this doing this to me? This is, you know, sometimes it shows me what I need it to. Oh, I know what it is. It's logic because I'm starting with, there we go. Sorry, I started with the wrong word. Here we go. There we go. Greek. This is where the etymology of logic, logos, word or reason. Because when you're saying in the beginning was the word, like what do we mean by that anyways? Like our English word, word, do we mean like there's a vocabulary word there? Obviously it has to mean more than that. What, what it was meaning is word as in reasoning word, as in thought of reason word. Like not just like a word out there, like W-O-R-D, once again dancing around saying, hello, I'm the word. Some of the people, like I've taught you before, Plato believed in a world of abstract objects. So his way of, and I always bring up Plato here because it's always good to understand because I've seen atheists try to go there. They will say God doesn't exist, but souls do. And you're like, well, how does that work? Because there's an immaterial world just like our world. And this world is a shadow of that world, and that world are the abstract objects, and the world of forms and the copies of those forms come into this world. So the world of the original form is over there. And so everything that's happening here is a copy. And so they'll say souls are from that world interacting in this world, but they're a copy of an original soul. Logic is being used in this world, but it's a copy of the original logic that's in that world. He did that to just get away from pagans. Very similar. you got to remember, Greeks were very similar to those of the Hindu faith. That's why you kind of hear sometimes, Indo-European, India and Europe mixing together. European and Indian gods and philosophies have a lot of things in common. Another way to just look at it is if you want to see Europeans being like Hindus, look at the Greeks and the Romans. They're worshiping multiple gods. They have multiple philosophies and theories, different beliefs on all the souls, a soul and all these things. Okay, so for them, in some theories, Logos could be the thing that holds it all together in the world of thought. That could be the original form. Okay, so anyways, Logos, word, and that would be similar to 
In the Hindus, Om, the Om sign. Has anybody heard of the Om? The Om, yeah, O-H-M. You'll see that as a, you'll see that as a, a symbol that they'll have. And, of course, that just came up. I don't think it's O-H-M. Let's see. Let's put a Hindu. I might be spelling it wrong. Om, not H. There we go. Yeah, you'll see this here. This symbol right here is what you'll see on a lot of necklaces with people in our neighborhood. And you'll see this a lot in uh, the world because even like Brad Pitts or whatever will read this. Om is a sacred sound or spiritual symbol in Hinduism that signifies the essence of ultimate reality, conscience, or Atman. This is similar to the way the Greeks re re uh, regarded Logos. Their Logos word, similar to Om, sound. The word, the spoken sound of Om, is similar to the idea of spoken word or logic, the things that we're saying that make sense of the world came from an original sound. How do we say as Christians? We say God said. God said. See, you see how worlds come together here? This is all because we all come from Adam and Eve, then through Noah's flood. So they see the power in the voice. They see the power in the word. God said, let there be light. He's speaking. So there is power in God's own, but we don't look at it with the connotations of Hinduism. There is logic and reason. There's the concept of word in our faith. But it's not just an ambiguous thing. It's not just a force. It's a person. That's why we say who was there in the beginning speaking those things. It's the Father through the Son enacting it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why there's a let us in there, a, a let us, a plurality. So anyways, going back to the etymology here, we cannot have logic without logos word. So the logos is the word or the reason, and the Greek logic, logiki, is the art of reasoning. And then that's why you see at the end of all of our um, all of our studies, theology, ology is study of, the reasoning of, the philosophy of, the logic of. So theology, the logic of God, the study of God, the reasoning of God. Psychology, psyche there, the soul, the study of, the logic of, the reasoning of, the soul. Does everybody get it? Biology, bios, life. And we could be here all day long. Physiology, physi, uh, physique, uh, the, the life uh, in the body, the body. Somology could be another way of saying it. The study of the body, the study of the physiology of who you are, the, physi, the physical parts of you, just like psyche is the solical parts of you. So all of this did have a, 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 the Bible borrowed from Greek words. And this is where, when people try to bring up to us the human aspects of our Bible and throw it against us, we're actually not upset. We don't believe, like the Muslims do about the Quran, that the Quran is a word etched in heaven from all of eternity, has always existed. We believe that the word, uh, is in twofold. The Word is a person, Jesus, and then the Word of God is His revelation to us in time. So we don't think that it's outside of time. It's within time. Now, has God always known it? Yes, but God creates it in time through the means of people. Men were led along by the Spirit and then wrote down. Holy men of God spoke, uh, uh, wrote as the Holy Spirit spake. You know, that that's how it was done. 
done. Uh, the, the Bible says that, that Scripture is theanustos, God breathed, and is useful for all the things that we need to do as Christians. And let me just put that up here because that's really good to have there as well. Uh, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So this is our belief about Scripture. That all scriptures God breathed, theanustas, theanustas. See, the theo there, the theo there is the God, uh, the word God, and then anustas here, you know, um, penanustas, P. So you got the theo, then P N E U S T O S. Uh, the panustas, but I don't generally pronounce the P. I just go right to the end. Theanustas, because the P may be silent there. That's the way I've heard it, you know. Let's see how uh, the Greek um, translator here says it. I don't know if we'll hear it, because I might have it. Yeah, we probably won't. Let's see. No, it's okay. So the bottom line is God breathe spoke through the scriptures. The, the, the God is speaking through this, the men as they're writing. He's not taking them over. It's like his breath is coming into their breath. His ideas are coming into uh, to their ideas. And so it's not taking them over. It's coming with them. And so Paul will express in the scriptures his own thoughts, his own opinions. They make, make mistakes, but the scripture is without mistake. And let me give you an example. The mistakes that they're making aren't for our doctrine. The mistakes that they're making are for us to learn from them and to see them as obvious. So our worldview would see it as obvious. So, so for example, um, if, if I see Solomon saying that, like, in, in, uh, it's particularly here in Ecclesiastes, if Solomon is saying, like, money solves every single problem and making these real boastful kind of claims, I'm supposed to know in his own writings, he's a backslidden preacher. I'm supposed to know that I'm, I'm not supposed to believe everything Ecclesiastes teaches me because a lot of what he's saying, he's saying out of anger or out of frustration, out of mistakes that he's made. So Ecclesiastes would be an example. Then there's other places where we see them doing things. So the writer's writing down what we see them doing, and we're not there to imitate them. And so you'll see this like with Muslims. They'll say, what's going on here? Our prophets would never make these mistakes. You make them out to be crazy, you know, like Lot getting raped by his, uh, his daughters. And it's like, you know, they think Lot's a prophet. They actually call him a prophet. And they're like, that would never happen to Lot. And we're like, yeah, it would, because the Bible tells us. You wouldn't even know who Lot was without the Bible. You have no information about Lot other than what we tell you. Now, it's, it's, it's like basically like the making up stories. It's like me saying, there's this guy named Oscar, and he did X, Y, and Z. It's like, but how would you know Oscar unless you met Oscar or knew somebody that knew him? So it's not like Muhammad had another set of manuscripts he's reading from. He just took these biblical characters and just put them in a whole another world, okay? So those would be those two examples. So for the most part, when they're telling us their opinion, like Paul, we know it's their opinion. When they're giving us cultural things, we know it's cultural things. When they're making mistakes like Solomon, we pretty much know they're making mistakes. I don't believe everything Solomon tells me in the place he's telling me he's a backslidden preacher and now he's living a life of regret. I don't believe all the advice of Job's friends. That's another example. Job's friends are supposed to be taken as oompa loompas. They may say some things every now and then, but if you just start word searching, maybe you're doing something like your word searching love, and then you just find like Job's friend says something about love, like love can be nasty sometimes, and then you're like, oh, man, Job's friend said it. You, you don't think in your mind to know that Job's friend's an idiot in the story, okay? So just know those kinds of things as you're going through the scriptures. 
We're looking at them as this, though, so our worldview conforms to the Scriptures. So our logic, our understanding, our reasoning is based in the Bible. Now, where do most people want to start? Where most people want to start is they want to start with science. They want to start with what they can prove. This is where I show them. Your own scientists, atheistic nonbelievers tell you science proves nothing. Science is only a best guess, and it's based on inductive logic. Now, last time I didn't do it as good, so this time I'll do it better. Inductive logic starts with uh, specifics and then moves to general rules. Deductive logic starts with generals and then moves to specific truth claims. Notice the difference. Here is the specific. Water boiled at 212. Every time I boiled water, it boiled around 212. General rule, therefore water boils and you got to put around 212. Because once again, that's our best guess based on the averages. It probably is just like pi running on somewhere where into the distance. It's probably 211 degrees, 0 0.9, 0 0.9, 0 0.9, 0 0.9, 0 0.9. And then somewhere around here it starts going 8, 7, 6, 4, 3, 8, 2, you know, 1, 2, and it keeps going. And if we had more better machines, we would just keep writing more numbers here. Because it's not the even number of 212. That's the rounded up number. And that's our best guess, and it works. Because whenever it crosses the threshold of 211 and the 212, we know it boils. And that's how we get rockets to the moon, our best guess. That's how we fix cancer and diseases. We do it with our best guess. So it's the same idea I, with other things. I picked a red ball out of the bag. All the balls I picked out of the bag were red. Therefore, all the balls in the bag are probably red. So I'm making general rules on that. So another one would be like this. I, I like English McMuffin. I like egg McMuffins. All the egg McMuffins I have are good. Therefore, I will like the next egg McMuffin. So it also makes a prediction about the future that water will continue to keep boiling at 212. Uh, egg McMuffins will continue to be like Egg McMuffins, and as many balls as I keep drawing will be like the ones I've already drawn out of the bag. But this comes into Hume's problem, the problem of induction. And the problem of induction is what these scientists are talking about when they say that science is not about certainty. The reason is, is because they are in the problem of induction. And you can go to Stanford's article and you can read about it here. The problem of induction, simply put, here's Stanford's article, can be simply put, it concerns the support of justification of inductive methods, which is the scientific method, methods that predict or infer, or infer. So we're predicting that the next time I boil water, it's going to be 212. Because I want you to have a recipe where you boil water. So boil water at 212. I'm predicting that. I'm predicting that the egg McMuffin today at McDonald's is going to be good. I'm predicting I'm going to get the ball out. I'm predicting the moon is going to be there. The ball is going to be red. Okay? In Hume's words, the instances of which we have had 
which we have had no experience, excuse me, instances of which we have had no experience resembles those of which we have had experience. Sometimes when they write and I'm talking, I can't get it. Instances of which we have had no experience resemble those of which we have had experience. Exactly. There is no way of saying what we have not experienced will resemble what we have experienced. Does everybody get that? The famous atheist Bertrand Russell who wrote the book, I'm Not a Christian. Okay, this is definitely not a Christian. This is what he wrote about this problem. Okay, let me tell you what, what he wrote right here. The problem of induction, it's in this article. The problem of induction. Okay, Russell. Let me see, why did I not get Bertrand Russell here? This is a different article right here. This is the stand. oh, sorry, which one was I on? Was the other one Stanford too? Because I've already been to this one. We'll go back to that one to make sure what it is. Here's what Burton Russell said, why I'm not a Christian. You know, it's either in this book or one of his other writings here, 1946, about the problem of induction. He says, there is no intellectual difference between sanity and insanity. So let's go back to pointing out the prediction. Well, first of all, let's just find out where I was at. So that's the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, this one, Plato.Stanford Encyclopedia of uh, there. This is the Stanford, they're both Stanford, but one is a different article. This is 2018. This one, I don't know where, 2006. Okay, so this is the more recent one I just went to. So now do you understand why Alex Rosenberg is wrong? Because he just said, I base my worldview on science and everything else is an illusion. Hume said, you can't even have science as your worldview because it's an illusion too. It cannot give you certainty. It only gives you best guesses. And if you can't solve the problem of induction, Bertrand Russell said, you can't tell the difference between sanity and insanity. How do you know you're insane or not insane? You could be that brain in a vat. There's no way around it. People who pretend there is are, are, are lying to themselves. Here is a theoretical scientist on the New Republic saying these same exact things, the one I wanted to show to you. Uh, right here is his name. His, he's a theoretical scientist, Carlo Rovelli. Carlo Rovelli, a good Italian name there, says science is not about certainty. Science is about finding the most reliable way of thinking at the present level of knowledge. So where does water boil right now according to our level of knowledge? 211.99999, whatever we they stop. There, that's, that's what it is, but it keeps going. Where, what is the circumference of pi right now? They've been running pi off computers. It's, it's bump, bump, bump. It just keeps going. Does everybody get that? That's all you have. That's all you have in science. Now, I, I know you guys got to start getting here, but watch this last article right here, uh, last paragraph. The very expression scientifically proven is a contradiction in terms. That's what I wanted to get you to. The very expression scientifically proven is a contradiction in terms. There is nothing that is scientifically proven. Okay, so, so having said that, you want to go back to this? We're demolishing arguments up here, aren't we? We're bringing them back to the Word because it's impossible. It's impossible for there to be another answer. Christianity is not just the best answer among many. It's the only possible answer. We'll talk more about that next week in Sunday and in chapel. 
Uh, before we close out, well, let me pray, let you start getting ready for class, and then we'll close out with questions. Father, thank you today for this awesome chapel. Help it to make sense as we study the scriptures, to know our worldview, to know how to demolish the arguments that people set up against your knowledge, and to understand that you have given us the truth. You are the truth, and you've given us yourself in the relationship we have with you, and you've given us your word. Help us to know you and your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,